Hello and welcome to Dress Fancy, the podcast that explores the timeless appeal and cultural relevance of fancy dress. I'm Lucy Clayton, and I'm here with Dr. Benjamin Wilde to talk about our slightly strange specialist subject. We're fascinated by the psychology of costume, for real people. What is it that makes us want to discard the denim and anoraks of everyday life and instead become something magical, historical or surreal? As always, you can follow the images that accompany this conversation on our Instagram feed, at Dress Fancy Podcast. Now, in previous episodes, we've followed a quite simple pattern. Lots of our themes have been about celebrations or parties. You could say we've tended to dress up, prance about a bit and go home drunk. But today we're going to explore a new, arguably more serious territory, reenactment. And I think for me, in a lot of our recent episodes, we've begun to think a little bit more about what actually constitutes fancy dress. So I think as we started in um, series one, have begun to sort of broaden in some ways the territory that we are looking at. And so I suppose a starting point in the discussions that we've had about this episode is to think about really what is reenactment and whether we think that sort of fits in the canon, if you like, of fancy dress. And I think it'd be fair to say we have at least opening quite different positions on that. (laughs) This is the first proper (laughs) scrap in the the history of Dress Fancy podcast. I think, well, okay, it's a really good place to start. I would consider it part of the fancy dress spectrum Mm -hmm. because for me, it's about the sort of semi-professional nature. Mm. So for me, anything that's costume that's on the stage or in the theatre or in ballet or any kind of professional performance is costume. Mm -hmm. And anything that's worn by people who don't do it all the time for money. <laughs> yeah, no, okay, yeah, yeah. So, so I, the, one of the reasons I love the idea of reenactment is because I love the idea that all these people are doing day jobs. And, you know, Gary from Accounts <laughs> yeah. spends his weekend as a medieval wench. That's definitely <laughs> fancy dress. It's really, I'm not suggesting that it's, you know, throw on and then yeah. chuck away. It's elaborate and complicated and there are rules. And that's obviously why I really yeah. like it. There's an amateurish... Mm. core underlying, which is not to say that it isn't taken incredibly seriously as we will discover. Yeah. But for me, that's why I think I can have it in my fancy dress okay. camp. So that that's the um, Clayton thesis. <laughs> uh, now that Badly the... <laughs> articulated. He's written a book on the subject. I don't think it's very fair. Um, well, it, well, you say that though. So <laughs> it is true that I have written a book about fancy dress, but the wild thesis now, I actually wouldn't consider reenactment to be fancy dress. And I actually state this at the beginning of the book that I don't include it, although I'm conscious I shouldn't be saying that because it might be ruling out potential buyers. Um, (laughs) I mentioned so much more, so please buy um, when it's available. (laughs) But no, no. But the reason I don't is because in some ways it's this idea of rules. I mean, for me, reenactment is, or at least how I perceive of it before we've had this discussion. So maybe there's room for us both to sort of move our ideas slightly. It's about the authenticity. It's about the accuracy. And for me that's restricting personal imagination and agency. And I think when I think about fancy dress in in, in writing about it, it is the personal nature, the imagination, the creativity that comes through. And I think if you're dressing as Napoleon, for example, then you are in the role of Napoleon, you're thinking of Napoleon. I think the other thing for me is that my perception is a lot of reenactment societies are essentially members only. So you're dealing with a sort of narrow group of people it's not necessarily having a wider sort of social impact. And I think for me, fancy dress is also something that is broadly affective. It's, mm. it's changing the way that we as individuals interact with each other. But if essentially it's a member-only group, 
you're not really changing the way that you see each other. So for example, if we were to be in fancy dress as I perceive it, the way that we interact with each other might be very different. But if we were to be reenacting, and I'm Wellington, you're Napoleon, we would be um, interacting as those characters, no more as Ben, Lucy, if that makes sense. But because we would be doing so in a way that isn't I mean, certainly, I don't think I would make a very good Napoleon. I don't think I'd make a very good Wellington. So, imagine, so we're being shit versions of those <laughs> yeah. things. And, and but we're I, trying. But we're trying. But for me, that's exactly the same as our shit Marilyn Monroe examples that we've talked about in previous episodes. There's no difference. There are people who e- existed and we are emulating them, mm. usually not very well. Yeah. And for me, that is the charm of all versions of dressing up. And I would include... The, you know, Gary from Accounts being the medieval wench yep. <laughs> is the same thing. Mm. I, 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 I don't know. I think it would be sort of depth. So if you go as your Marilyn Monroe, you're inspired that that's sort of by that iconic scene. And maybe you might sort of feel like Marilyn Monroe, but you're not necessarily during that evening acting as Marilyn Monroe, speaking as Marilyn right. Monroe. So you haven't got that, that sort of full on authenticity. It is solely superficial. You're going as the character. So for you, it's the, the, the role playing is the thing that's getting in the exactly. way. It's the, yeah, the, the way that you immerse yourself means that you downgrade, if you like. You, you, you're depersonalizing it. You're okay. no longer. Okay. But as we will discover, yes. I think there are some examples that will change your mind about that. And there's also people who do disagree with me. So there is an article by Pat Poppy that came out and she talks about fancy dress and she poses the question in her title, costume for reenactment question mark and she does consider reenactment to be a form of fancy dress but it's interesting and i suppose coming back to your point she argues that it is closer to theatrical right. dress because it's likely to be worn again and again so these sort of stock roles in a way as you might have for a shakespeare performance or whatever but i think it's also interesting just generally how reenactment is considered in terms of the sort of spectrum of the wider category of costume and where fancy dress sits within that. I mean, there's an interesting book by Praveena Shukla, which is called Costume, Performing Identities Through Dress. And she conjures with a huge variety of topics that I would, yes, say are are costume, but think there are huge voids between them. So she, for example, in this one book, discusses reenactors' dress alongside Brazilian carnival costume and Swedish folk costume. Okay, that does seem... like a leap. Yeah. So I think we might broadly say they're all forms of costume, but to lump them all together seems to be a bit confusing. And I think, again, that's, for me, an appeal of what we're talking about. Where do the sort of boundaries lie? Yeah, and I'm and- not suggesting, and we will come back to this, yeah. but you know, there's a big difference between dressing as an avocado and something you bought on the internet for <laughs> yeah. Halloween yeah. in California versus, you mm. know, being in a field somewhere in Lincoln. Yes. In yeah. chain mail that is also, you mm. know, authentically going to protect you from a genuine sword. Like, it's, yeah. it's obviously an elevated version of that. But for yeah. me, I think it's still, mm. I want it to yeah. belong in my... Well, I think you're right also, because what is definitely clear, however we are defining reenactment, that this is, this is a huge thing, sartorially and I suppose also commercially. I mean, Pat Poppy is writing her article in 1997. And at the time, she talks about focusing specifically on Britain, I think. But she talks about 20,000 people being involved and you know the topics that are perennially sort of used and focused on. So if you're in England, it's maybe the English Civil War. If you're in America, it's perhaps the Civil War, the Revolution. 
maybe continental Europe, the Napoleonic era. She also talks about, and again, maybe linking back to theatrical costume and, and sort of rules, but the costume guides that are given, this importance about accuracy and authenticity, consulting original documents. And I'd probably care to bet that the Ukrainian armourer whom you hired... I didn't hire it. I, I bought it well, at well, okay. great, <laughs> almost crippling expense. <laughs> so reviving that, I should, have, I should have thought before I spoke. But I mean, I, would I don't have... think you can hire this stuff. I think oh. it's... No, I think you, well, you have Well, not yours. To... Yours will not be blooded. Yeah, so. mine is covered in... Well, I think they're all covered in blood because okay. they're worn in battle, aren't they? That's true. Well, and I was going to say, I would imagine that the guy <laughs> that you commissioned... Probably actually, you know, makes his living by... Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Making... I think it was. I think it was a, a yeah, yeah, quite hardcore reenactment supplier. Yeah. Yeah. We should say we know that there are many, many subgenres, mm. both within historical reenactment, which is what we've been talking about yeah. until now, but also we should talk about LARPing. Yes. Which for our listeners who aren't entirely au fait with this language live action role playing and we're going to talk about both actually in this yeah. episode but we are conscious that there are multi-layered versions of these things it's quite tribal actually this whole mm. area as you would expect and obviously broadly speaking live action role playing is also kind of concerned with authenticity but in a slightly different way mm. to historical reenactment so historical reenactment tends to be of course battle focused mm. it tends to relive moments in history in as faithful a way as is yeah. possible. Whereas LARPing, there is such thing as historical LARPing, but there is also fantasy LARPing mm. and all sorts of kind of versions of that. There's a kind of creatively mm. more potential, I think, yeah. from my perspective. And I should say, actually, when we talked about doing this episode and there's such a lot of rich stuff yeah. to talk about, I will be honest I thought that we would mainly be saying, God, why would anyone want mm. to be in a muddy field all weekend, <laughs> uh, dressed yeah. in a bit of hessian, having mm. a miserable time, mm. you know, for the sake of a few hundred onlookers or whatever. Yeah. I, I thought we would, mm. it would end up feeling quite scathing and superior about all of this. I have to say, mm. this is a surprising sentence. <laughs> this falls into the sentences I never thought I'd say. It turns out, I think I've found my tribe. Oh my goodness. Not in historical reenactment, I yeah. hasten to add. That's a bit extreme for me, but actually quite specifically in Nordic LARPing. That's actually very specific. Yeah, pack your bags, Ben. We're <laughs> on. <laughs> Off we go. Wow. Because it's so lovely. They're just. <laughs> I was going to say, you're going to have to tell me, tell me more. If, if, if we're going somewhere, then yeah. Uh, we're going. Oh, no, so we, we should go. Yeah. We should definitely go. So the, the, the thing about Nordic LARPing is it's particularly immersive, but it's a mm. lot about storytelling and identity and togetherness yeah. in the design, in the play space, in each other. And that's as described by an expert in the field, Will Osmond. He does a talk called Roots of Inheritance. And it's sort of versus the faithful retelling with an mm. emphasis on war. There's a much more creative strain to this, which is about kind of, I guess, navigating mm. our way through history and imagination at the same yeah. time. And I found that really actually quite moving. Well, I think what's interesting, and, and again, doing this episode probably in, in some ways more than any other has sort of shifted my thinking. Right. Because I think you're right. Some of those sort of preconceptions that we have or had, I would suggest are probably shared by lots of people. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I, I don't think I'm sort of besmirching our listeners by saying that. But I think what's interesting is this idea and, and the role of authenticity. And I think where my I, I'm already beginning to sort of pivot and shift is this idea that historical reenactment is an authenticity that is 
in a sense, superficial. I don't mean by that it's not genuine, but it's a superficiality in that it's about what you perceive as a viewer. So all of the costumes, their rivets, how it's all held together and worn has to be accurate. That's where the authenticity is stemming from. Whereas if we're thinking about LARPing, the authenticity is more about the authenticity of experience. Yes, exactly. About playing a role, embodying that person. Yeah. And I think that's quite fundamental. Yeah. But I think what's also interesting then is that historical reenactment is therefore more easy potentially to validate because you can say that's, you know, authentic mm. or not. You know, you're not going to be a very good Roman if there's a little bit of Velcro peeking out from under right. your tunic. <laughs> um, but actually with LARPing, it's much more difficult for me or a, a third party to say, no, 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 that's not authentic. Because it, if you're not part of that community, yeah. if you're not getting that sort of cohesive sort of spirit, well, then, you know, you're not part of that group. I spent some time looking at how the people who mm. engage in this, how they define it. And it's really interesting as soon as you, I mean, I could spend hours <laughs> really kind of getting to grips with all of this, but. <laughs> Listener, tem- of course, we know she has. <laughs> <laughs> the temptation is there. I sort of sucked in. So I'm going to quote from this guy. This guy is in, in Italy, is, goes under the pseudonym J-Mock for this particular Ooh. forum. I've been in the depths of forums oh, okay. for, for a few days. I've just researched. I wondered why you weren't replying to my emails. <laughs> <laughs> I've gone to join a new life. So the title actually of this debate on this forum was something like, why is historical reenactment losing out to LARPing? Oh, wow. So, that, so they're very conscious the of that. Oh, absolutely. Oh, okay. Yes, right. quite sort of, quite territorial, I mm. think. Anyway, so J-Mock says, I've tried LARPing, but from the standpoint of someone who's been fencing, historical reenacting for most of his life, I feel that the research aspect of reenactment, i.e. long sword manuscripts, the research into historical strategy and then playing it out, makes a better source for the real thing. The last and most important thing for me is that the use of steel blades, which gives the whole thing a greater sense of danger. I felt that this is what would change the fighting style most of all when I was LARPing. It was foam swords and people just wanted to charge Charging in with no concern for breaking fingers or chipping teeth, which I have done, sadly, <laughs> he says. Cru- I don't wow. think he's that sad about it. No. And then on the other side, someone else in reply to this, this sort of scrap yeah. about, he says, this is a sort of retort to that, my experience of reenactment is different. You dress up, talk to the public, do a quick fight and then get the beers on after. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm warming to it. I've been a Saxon and a Viking in my time and now I'm part of a World War II group. It's a very different well, experience. Yeah, wow. yeah, It's often scripted as to who will win. There may be a story, but it's usually narrated stories so the public can follow it. It's as much for the spectators as the participants. Dismissing an entire hobby as childish based on one experience is a bit close-minded and borderline offensive to those of us who enjoy it and get a lot more out of that than childishness. I spent a weekend in a bunker two weeks ago on a post-apocalypse event being chased by cannibals. So, you know. But, yeah, I'm not quite sure how to follow that. But I, but I think it... Serious. Yes. But it, it's demonstrating, I think, also this idea of relevance... Yes. That it, it's the frame in which these events, whether it's LARPing or historical reenactment, are taking place. And I suppose in some ways, the fact that with both there's an element, well, it's, it's clearly performative, but there's an element of it needing public sanction. Yes. And, and so how the audience perceive it, whether that's getting into the spirit of it or seeing it more as a sort of commercial activity, something they do at a weekend or bank holiday or whatever it might be, I suppose they need to be cognizant of in some way. Yeah. But I think that's why... I'm drawn, I don't want to go on about it, but I'm drawn to this sort of Nordic LARPing version of things because, Mm. (laughs) So, but I'm going to summarise why. So this this is from the very helpful website, 
Nordic LARP.org, which, and the section, what is Nordic LARP? Right. Okay, so it's, it's fundamentally ears. three things. Okay. okay. Number one, immersion. Mm-hmm. So Nordic LARPers want to feel like they are really there. This includes creating a truly convincing illusion of physically being in a medieval village or on a spaceship or on a World War II bunker, playing a character that is very close to your own physical appearance, as well as focusing on getting under the character's skin to feel their feelings. Dreaming in character at night is seen by some Nordic LARPers as a sign of appropriate levels of immersion. Wow. Yeah. Collaboration. Nordic Star LARP is about creating an exciting and emotionally affecting story together, not Mm. measuring your strength, which is good for me because I would be crap at that (laughs) side of things. Very weak. Yeah, okay. Very little core strength. Oh. Or or end strength. (laughs) No strength. Right. There is no winning and many players intentionally let their characters fail in their objectives to create more interesting stories. That's really interesting. And the last and my favourite artistic vision many nordic games are intended as more than entertainment they make artistic or even political statements the goal in these games is to affect the players long term and to perhaps change the way they see themselves or how they act in society larping for good and there is i think certainly from what i've seen a slight divide as well between what is kind of a spectator sport yep. you know for the benefit and obviously we have certainly in this country english heritage mm. use reenactment as big events yep. that draw huge crowds to, to kind of experience the history in the making mm. i guess now here in the uk english heritage run a really significant historical event program across the year in fact about 600 events at 40 of their historic properties they stage everything from roman festivals to medieval jousting to world war ii weekends and it's probably for most people the place where they've seen reenactment unfold we spoke to english heritage's head of events, Emily Sewell, and she gave us some background from their perspective. We've been in correspondence with her. And one of the things I found really interesting is their perspective on the way this has changed over recent years. So she told us, English Heritage has led the way in starting to run historical events about 25 years ago. Nowadays, it's quite a crowded marketplace with most heritage attractions staging these kinds of events at points in the year. What makes us stand out is the breadth of our offer due to the nature of our portfolio. We're staging everything from prehistory events at Stonehenge to tours around the York Cold War bunker and just about everything in between. I think reenactment has changed a lot since the 80s and 90s, where you would see a few groups that had huge membership numbers and would literally stage events with hundreds and hundreds of participants. Organisations such as the Sealed Knot are probably the most famous example of this. However, it has changed in the last couple of decades as the big groups have split up a bit and you can see more smaller groups emerging. This means that gathering big numbers can be hard, but that the quality has gone up significantly. If you look at an area such as jousting, people have been recreating jousting since the 1970s. Since 2000, it's become increasingly popular and you now find jousting in in all its different forms. Stunt jousting, bolster jousting, solid lance jousting, taking place literally all over the world, including America, Australia and Moscow, with a significant amount happening in the UK and mostly that is at English heritage sites. One of the questions we asked Emily is, what is it that makes reenactment so attractive from a visitor perspective? And the focus of her answer was very much about the family-friendly way of bringing history to life for their visitors. So she says, it offers the opportunity to watch huge spectacles, but also to get involved in trying things on, touching and feeling things, talking to hugely knowledgeable people and having an intimate moment that brings them closer to history. We find that events are a really good way to engage people in a really accessible way that really brings history to life for them. It's interesting when we talked about 
the relevance of historical accuracy for English heritage. They're at a huge advantage just to start with because by doing it at Stonehenge, you're already halfway there. But Emily's perspective was really interesting on that. She said, historical accuracy is hugely important to us. It represents our brand organising thought. We bring history to life. We've always gone to great lengths to work with groups to ensure that what we're presenting goes as far as it can to bring the past to life for our visitors, while still being entertaining and accessible to all. We don't just book off-the-shelf performances for groups, we create events with them and ensure that they're unique to English heritage. We have a core number of groups that we work with, but we're also looking for new, fresh ideas or presentations. One of the things that really surprised me about some of Emily's answers to our questions was one of the things we asked was what's the most popular period from a visitor number angle sort of from a bums on seats perspective I guess and I had assumed that that would be all the obvious things which is the case so you know Romans she said that the big numbers are attracted by Romans uh, medievals particularly jousting which is obviously a focus for them and something that they excel at and World War II her point about that is that you know she says, I guess that there are three periods of history that everyone can instantly identify and know what to expect when they visit. They also get huge crowds at the Battle of Hastings reenactment every year. But something that surprised me is that during Christmas, it is the Victorian era that really leads the way. She says, our visitors particularly love exploring Queen Victoria and Prince Albert's Isle of Wight retreat Osborne House when it's bedecked in its festive finery, echoing the royal couple's enjoyment of Christmas and the influence on the way we celebrate today. We run many Victorian-themed festive events at Osborne and other English heritage sites throughout the country. It's as close as you're probably going to get, particularly if you're a child. It's an amazing way of seeing what you learnt in the classroom brought to life. It's important, therefore, that it looks authentic and believable. Yeah, this kind of experiential learning. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's picked out by examples from the American Civil War. And so, again, quoting from Pravlina Shulker's book, she's interviewed various people and Wayne Brunson is a American Civil War reenactor. He's been doing it for 20 years and bears out exactly the point you've just made, Lucy. And he says as follows, Civil War reenacting is trying to recreate the past and present in a way that the public can see and visualise how things were in the 1860s. What the public sees is supposed to be nothing but what is authentic. So that, I think, is very much taking the line that this is about sort of edifying entertainment, if you like. It's this experiential learning that I think, Lucy, you just mentioned. However, I mean, and also coming back to this idea of sort of tribes and and different views, the book I've just quoted cites another reenactor. So this is Mark Lapointe, who is a union reenactor. And he says, which I think is quite interesting about this idea of tribal rivalry and in some ways the lack of cohesion, some people are so into it, this is historical reenactment, they're so into it that it's almost crazy. We call them stitch Nazis. They come and tell you that your uniform is wrong. They are just pompous enough that they can say things that sometimes are not necessary. But then I also look at them and say, well, you're 50 pounds overweight and you're about 32 years old to be doing this. (laughs) So if you're interested in historical accuracy, you should probably not be here (laughs) or doing something else because you don't fit either. There's a kind of a a bitchiness almost there. Yeah, run your ass around the block and come (laughs) back to me and tell me about my uniform. (laughs) But I think what's interesting is, and sort of breaking this down, you've got... In one sense, people doing this clearly then for enjoyment. But I think to me that doesn't quite go far enough because that 
nitpicking and wherever you are, whether you would be, as, as Mark LaPointe says, this sort of extreme of a, a sort of stitch Nazi, but that level of detail isn't covered by enjoyment alone. There's right. a further need there. I wonder if it's the line between sort of enthusiast and obsessive. Well, I think that's in the sense how, yeah, how he's perceiving How he's it. seeing yeah, it, because he's having so. a really lovely time, yeah. isn't he? yeah. Until someone comes mm. and tells him he's wrong. Yeah. But who shat- wants to spend their weekends doing that? Like, that's the thing. Mm. It's, you know, that wouldn't be super fun. And actually, interestingly, we'll come on to talk about kind of community in, and how it's used as a cohesive force elsewhere. Yeah. The two can't coexist, can they? No, you can't be exactly. no. critical to that obsessive level. No. And also all be part of the same. So it's interesting when you think about societies, because, you mm. know, obviously there's always rivalry in politics yeah. in any kind of group of people. But... Mm. That's a kind of interesting. Yeah, and it's kind of do a behind the scenes oh, yeah. rivalry. Well, that, yeah, because I was going to say this is almost the sort of first time that we've encountered in our sort of forays into fancy dress this level yeah. of sort of carping about sort of what each other's doing or indeed not doing. So I think there is that sense that you know, for some it's maybe escapism, but for those people who do take it seriously, again, that's not good enough. Yeah. Escapism is almost in a sense frivolous. So. I think what's emerging if we're thinking about, or for me at least, with historical reenactment, it's this idea of education, this idea of it being, as I said, sort of superficially authentic as a vehicle to then transport people into the 1860s or 1640s, if you're looking at the English Civil War or whatever it might be. And in some ways, I suppose that there is a link here to events that we might or indeed we have more readily talked about his fancy dress and thinking about the Devonshire Ball or in thinking about the Romanov Ball, the idea on both of these occasions was that by channeling ancestors from the past in learning about those roles, you are reminding people about their heritage. Or if you're a sort of Aristo on the make or a czar trying to keep your throne and indeed possibly life, you are sort of tapping into a greater legitimacy. Right. So there is, I suppose, that sort of wider sort of edifying theme in a way. And I suppose in some ways this might be just sort of, in a sense, thinking out loud where a living history might sort Mm. of possibly come in because this has been a huge growth area, hasn't it, in terms of recent years, both in the UK and I suppose America, in terms of TV series. So the Edwardian Country House, which was aired in 2002 on Channel 4. I particularly liked with Giles Corran and Sue Perkins, the supersizers go. <laughs> and this was the, the sort of premise here is that each week for, I think, an hour-long episode, they would sort of dress up in the period of one episode that's sort of etched into my mind is the court of Louis XIV, <laughs> so sort of at Versailles. And they would, it's called the supersizers because essentially would focus on, on food and they would eat all of Louis XIV's sort of enormous courses, etc. Yeah. But dress the part. And it would be an understanding of the way that clothing and food would sort of influence the way that you behave towards one another, what that said about your sort of status, etc. during this time. But again, it's this idea, I suppose, of a more superficial, perhaps, authenticity. Well, do you think, in your professional opinion, were they authentically dressed for that do you think or just enough to let the cameras lie kind of thing yeah I think yeah. it's more to let the, the cameras lie I think it's just something at the back of the BBC props yes <laughs> well yeah it probably was actually Sue put this yeah. on <laughs> oh no don't worry it doesn't do up at the back it doesn't matter no one will see that kind of thing. exactly no I think so I don't think anyone in the LARPing community or the historical reenactment community would approve of that no they probably wouldn't but what they would approve of is that sort of 
totally immersive. Yes. Eat the food, use the language. Mm. You know, all, all of that yeah. stuff feels very holistic, I guess. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, I think you're right. So I think a really good example of this idea of immersion is in America, actually, and I suppose going back to ideas of the sort of Civil War and thinking about Colonial Williamsburg in Virginia, which is described as the world's largest living history museum. And I mean, I've never been and I knew it was a a big site, but I had absolutely no idea that we're talking about a 301 acre site. Wow. Which is, to my mind, just Let's um, go. We've got so much travel to do. I know we have. We definitely should. I like the idea of if that. To abandon all other things and just do a tour, a world tour. Oh my god, how good is that? World tour of weird, yeah, things. Our America. listeners are salivating at the prospect. I'm sure. Or thinking, no, just. just <laughs> <laughs> Our dear it's listeners fine. We're would really not happy think that. with what you're doing now. That's no, what they're no. thinking. No, we want lots of plugs. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, but yeah, it is a vast complex. You're dealing with nearly a thousand employees who are at the site, and and so on a scale that I'd never previously sort of envisaged. But I think what's interesting is the way that the site talks about what its sort of raison d'etre is, what its purpose is. So they talk about it bringing back the beauty and charm of 200 years ago. It is to recreate and reinterpret colonial life. Hmm. So again, I think it's that idea, going back to what we're saying about sort of historical reenactment, about a sort of superficiality. It's what you see you know, you see the people in their sort of contemporary frocks and their garb and their houses, and that instantly is click. We're now back into the sort of 19th century or thereabouts, I think. But I, th- I think what's also, again, this this interesting is this sort of dichotomy that on the one hand, they want beauty and charm, but at the time that Colonial Williamsburg is being set up, so this is in 1926, this is at a, a time, I think, when sort of America is responsible for 40% of the world's manufacturing goods. So there is almost, as much as it's edifying, possibly a sense of escapism. Let's go back into the past. Well, and also it's an interesting, the language of reinterpret colonial life. I mean, presumably Mm. that means with the less pleasant side of it edited out. Yeah, I would imagine so. Yeah, Which, of course, is the obvious point about sort of the politics behind any retelling of any Mm. history is who owns that narrative? How is that being rendered for Mm. our our audiences now? And who comes out well in that story? And and who are the real heroes? It's always kind of slightly worrying. Mm. We should say that we haven't been to Colonial Williamsburg and they may, in fact, very elegantly deal with all of the political moments Mm. and... In the language that they used to describe it, it seems like it's almost been sort of cleaned up. Yeah, I, I was going to use... But sort that of, may not be the case. No. They may be very, very deftly mm. exploring all angles and doing so in a very fair mm. way. We don't know. We spent half term at a French equivalent sort of place. <laughs> or oh, It feels very yeah. similar from Puy de Faux in France. And it was a similar sort of historical... Mm theme park but not with any rides okay. so just you know so, so sort of shows and events yeah. you know you walk through the medieval village there's you know people doing medieval activities mm. or but everything is a very french version mm. of that history so they have a full roman amphitheater yeah. uh, it's incredible but again the sort of the politics of the history that's being yeah. told france is basically the hero in every story and it's kind of interesting and, and was that in a sense ham were you when you were there, were you very much aware? Was there a voice saying to you, this isn't how it happened? Well, <laughs> or, or, or is it so immersive um, that you actually, it's not until you kind of come from that bubble that you just think, 
hold on a minute. That's not what I remember from my... (laughs) It's a good question. I was so into it (laughs) that, I will be honest, my cultural sensitivity was dampened somewhat by... Mm. Actually, the sheer scale and visual impact of the whole yeah. thing is really gung-ho, yeah. but every detail is really well thought out. If you imagine kind of Disney, yes. but if, if Disney were totally beautiful and every detail was kind of clean <laughs> mm. and wonderful, but historically, not historically accurate, but historically believable. Mm. Well, they create series of worlds. There's all sort of different themes and you kind of walk around. It's huge. So I think my kind of critical antenna was not at its sharpest because I was just so excited. (laughs) But uh, but But one thing I would say is that I was very conscious that it wasn't the version of history that I was taught in school in England. Yeah. There was a definite emphasis on Mm. France's superiority in every story. Yeah. Because as you were saying that I, I was thinking that I haven't been to Colonial Williamsburg or had your experience of your sort of half term escapism or, or <laughs> medievalism more to the point. But I, I have in a strange way, which I won't sort of contextualise in any way and talk about, but have been to Disneyland Paris. That's maybe why, again, sort of the, the prejudices or, or not that we, or preconceived ideas possibly is a better way of putting it, that we've come to this topic with, that it is when you go to somewhere like Disneyland Paris, and I'm now, I now realise I'm probably offending a whole different segment of our <laughs> listenership, but um, when you go to those themed restaurant yeah. that is actually really quite tacky. It's more on the commerciality of it. I've just invented a word there, why not? Yeah. Rather than thinking about any sense of it being culturally faithful or accurate. It is the sort of theme parkery. Another way to invent a word there. But, <laughs> it's but, just, you, at some point you're not speaking language, but, yeah, but no, yeah. no, you're right. And I think that's the thing. And it's interesting when we talk about immersiveness mm. in historical reenactment yeah. terms. If you immerse yourself in Disneyland Paris... That's a pretty unpleasant place to be, yeah. or actually any Disneyland, because the ruthless commercial mm. opportunities, every time you turn your head, they're trying to sell you something. Mm. To compare that to the French place, I at one point actually said, I wish there were more shops. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. Only because I was just desperate to yeah. like, buy everything of all the outfits and all of that. Yeah. And I was sort of disappointed that there wasn't more opportunity for me to, mm. I did come back with a floral crown. Ooh. Which is not, you know, it's not that enough. That still sounds quite impressive, though. No, I wanted full Roman armour. <laughs> <laughs> but that actually does sort of pick up a point going back to Colonial Williamsburg and this idea of authenticity that their costume design centre has apparently a store of 50,000 costumes. That would definitely be worth wow. the travel. But they produce what is referred to as the Colonial Williamsburg Costume Handbook. And I, th- I think one example of that idea of sort of authenticity is again picked up if we think back to Colonial Williamsburg, because they have in their store 50,000 costumes, which I think would be well worth the trip for us alone. Alone? Oh, my Imagine God. Imagine walking through that wardrobe. You should have led with that. Like, yeah, I don't have tell me about the acres, Ben. I've got no interest in walking any of those you know, acres. As I said, that I thought your face was a bit black. <laughs> but I would push people out of the way to get to that shop. Yeah. But to have these 50,000 costumes, what's equally, I think, impressive is that there is a Colonial Williamsburg costume handbook, which explains how they should be made. And again, quoting from Pravina Shukla's book, she describes it as follows, that this is a 68-page comprehensive guide that informs users about costume policies as well as proper wear, care and terminology tips on how to adhere to extreme weather conditions and illustrations giving directions about how to put on specific garments and offering options for wear. On page 45, for example, we find eight 
different styles of arranging a woman's neck scarf, each accompanied by a detailed line drawing. The handbook ends with a three-page bibliography of secondary sources on 18th century clothing, and employees are encouraged to engage in research about the clothing they wear. I approve of everything about that. Yeah, in lieu of the trip, I want the costume handbook. I want the handbook. (laughs) I once issued a style guide for a fancy dress party. (laughs) In my defence... I, I like the it. fact that you instantly need to rush to defence. No, because I know that makes me sound like a monster. Really? Yeah, but I'm now I'm, all I'm thinking is that was just one page and it could have been 68 pages. Yeah. <laughs> no, but the reason I did it was because th- there was some confusion mm. and I kept get people kept saying, well, is it this or is it this? Kind of, confusion about and, the theme. About the theme. Yeah. And so I simply wrote it all down with examples. Do you know, I think that's quite helpful. And, and, and we are aware, of course, of, of hosts doing that. So with the Devonshire Ball, there was yes, the exactly, um, yep. dresses sort of pre-1800. So I think that's acceptable. But also actually sort of thinking about this, these idea of rules and, and linking it back to a fancy dress territory that we've sort of conjured with more readily in previous episodes. If we think back to the 19th century, then you've got authors like Arndon Holt, who are actually prescribing what... Victorians should wear and stressing this idea of accuracy. But I think it's interesting, though, again, this divide between what is authentic and what the role of possibly reenactment is, because with Colonial Williamsburg, they obviously do have a shop, similar to that which you were describing with regard to your your French experience. But it's interesting that Linda Baumgarten, who is in charge of the costume collection, says that here, in terms of authenticity with the shop, parameters are even looser. And she makes, I think, this interesting point that what they're selling in the shop is largely children's costumes. And she says they are so compromised in authenticity that they are closer to Halloween costumes than to those worn in the historic area. And so it's interesting, as we were talking about in a previous episode on ugly fashion, kind of almost a snobbery there, isn't there, Mm. I think? And that almost somehow Halloween or fancy dress is trivial, is lesser than. Or is the sort of lowest end of the costume spectrum. Yeah. Yeah, that, that snobbery is is something that kind of, or not snobbery, but, you know, hierarchy is something that keeps coming back, actually, so, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. Where it's sort of how we rate mm. yeah. the importance of, of fancy dress. Yeah, and, and she sort of rounds off this idea by saying, we are essentially a museum and a business. And they, so this is the reenactors, have the responsibility to talk to the public and to interpret. It's not Halloween. It's not about their presentation of self. It's about the message. That sense of putting the self as secretary to the message reminds me of our conversation that we had in Mm. the very first episode about costume and political protests. Yes. Where we were talking about Rachel Fallon's work and the wearer being the vessel for the idea and therefore very secondary to the idea. So as if the costume renders them invisible, but the message is front Mm. and centre. That's very similar. But that sense of superiority and snobbery in that sentence, which we also talked about in the fashion episode... But we've talked about the extremes that people go to for accuracy or detail Mm. in this episode, then, of course, the average Halloween effort does look very entry-level in comparison. Mm. It's fair to say that we've only been able to scratch the surface of this rich reenactment territory in today's conversation, and we would love to continue with it. So if you're a diehard reenactor or a LARPer, or particularly a Nordic LARPer... (laughs) Lucy wants to hear from you. I really... This is an invitation to please get in touch. We would love to hear from you. We think there's a lot more to discuss in here, and we'd love to get more in-depth in it. 
Don't forget to subscribe, share and review us on whatever platform you get your podcast content on. Thank you, as always, to Mark, our editor, to Beth and Emily from English Heritage and to you all for listening. Join us next time for more costume drama. 